We have another question that's come in here, and that is uh, Secretary uh, Paulson talked about the credit markets freezing up. Could you explain the role here of federal regional banks? Well, that's sort of a complicated, you know, federal regional banks. I'm not sure exactly what. Uh, it looks like that's from David Scott. Well, first, the regional banks can be either state chartered or, or have a national charter. So I think maybe that's that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. But in general, the regional banks, if you at least in terms of stock price, if you look at some of the regional banks, they have not been beaten down as much as the as the larger banks because they were they serve a little bit different role. They were not big players into some of this. Sure. Uh, and so you know, in terms of the credit marking freezing up, the, the danger if the government didn't step in. There'd be no money available. Well, you know, there are still businesses that are ongoing. Everybody's not ready to shut their doors. Well, if you're an ongoing business, you have working capital needs, you have long-term expansion needs. So we need money to continually flow through our system to fuel the economy. So there was a real fear that all of this could just bring the availability of funds down to zero because everybody was so worried with the lack of confidence they were throwing all of their money into U.S. Treasury securities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not even money market funds. Not even money market funds, no. Well, the money market funds were impacted by the decline of some of these yeah. investment houses, mm -hmm, too, because sure. oh, they were right. investing in some of the debt owned by and marketed mm -hmm. through these companies, so. these firms. Well, it's, it's fascinating. One of the other things, if there's a slightly different take on what uh, David was, uh, was asking, if he was talking about the regional Federal Reserve banks, oh, okay. yes. and they're talking about clearing credit, clearing from bank to bank, through the Federal Reserve. I'm not sure if that was uh, uh, the point of David's question too. But uh, the thing I would add to this is that not only are we talking here about a liquidity problem in the U.S., but we're also talking about liquidity moving out of U.S. markets into other markets around the world. So part of the things uh, that we're facing here is when we have credit problems in the U.S., it now becomes somewhat easier uh, for people to wire liquid funds elsewhere around the world. So mm -hmm. we're back to that interconnectedness that we talked about a little bit earlier. And I think that reduces the ability of the United States, uh, particularly the United States uh, government authorities, to act alone. Mm -hmm. And so you saw, I think, not quite unprecedented, but really a very close uh, degree of cooperation among central bankers around the world at the end of last week to get together to try to do some things in concert and let everybody know that they were working together in concert to supply liquidity literally around the world, which is absolutely fascinating to sort of watch this stuff unfold. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's costly for everybody around, and we all have to live in the real-world economy. But for those of us that are academics who like to study these sorts of things, uh, we don't want to see crises happen too often. But when they do, it's interesting to watch the way markets absolutely. and regulators mm -hmm. adapt. And I think in this case, they were doing uh, the right thing in coordinating and, and announcing what they're doing to help reassure markets uh, on uh, and, and affect uh, the reputational side of the markets as well as actually supply that liquidity so they actually could sort of make things move through, but they also want to let people know mm -hmm. exactly what they're doing. Yeah, it's like $180 billion from the major countries of, yeah. of liquidity was pumped in, so we're talking mm -hmm. a lot of money yeah. in a short period of time. Right. And signaling the willingness to continue to do that going right. forward. Mm -hmm. That's very good. Absolutely. Yeah, and there were some concerns about hyperinflation, but again, that's that's not a real concern if we're, we're talking about um, what could happen, the consequences of a seized up uh, financial system. So yeah, I was actually again, thinking about, about the inflation, and uh, some of you are familiar with the misery index. I know, uh -huh. Dan, you are, right. uh, which is the sum of the unemployment right. rate 
and the inflation rate. And if, if our viewers would go and Google it, I can't remember. I think it's miseryindex.us or .net. Yeah. I can't remember. When did they Misery. first come out with that, John? Do you Gosh, remember? I don't remember the year. My 70s. recollection is it was in the 70s, 70s with, yeah. when, and the, again, we were in a political election time, right. I think, with the Carter. Yeah, you know, somewhere around Reagan, there. And they were adding these things up and came up with this misery mm -hmm. index. And the thing that's starting to happen now is what we have always seen when the government, uh, Federal Reserve, uh, in our case, central bankers supply relatively easy credit, as the Fed was doing through 2003, 2004, and, and, and later. And that is inflationary pressures building and pushing things up so that now, uh, if you look at the overall CPI, you're starting to see numbers that are crossing 5 and 6 percent. Even the core CPI, when you remove uh, the particularly volatile food and energy prices, is still now up close to about 3 percent. Um, you know, we're starting to see things trending upwards. And uh, I'm afraid that if we're not careful, we'll get into the situation where those 3, 4, 5, 6 percent inflation numbers get built into. Uh, longer-term interest rates, and they're particularly tough to sort of squeeze back mm -hmm. down. Uh, we have another question that's come in here on the chat room uh, from Roberto Fass. Uh, his question is, do you all think that the government will be able to recoup some of this, quote, welfare money uh, to these financial corporations? Uh, recover some? Yes. Yes, recover, recover some. some. <laughs> I know that's a simple answer. Of course, some will be recovered. Not every bad loan that the government will acquire will default. Or, okay. you know, or even if they're in default, there may be some recovery of value. So uh, even though we're talking that the, the estimates of the cost right now are about $700 billion, that's what it's going to take to buy all of these loans from these institutions. But then there'll be a recovery. It's just like anyone who handles recovery of bad debt, you know, you know you'll be able to recover some. How much, we don't know mm -hmm. at this point. But I would think there'd be some recovery. Yes, and again, that depends on how quickly we can have some recovery in our real estate markets, the mm -hmm. housing market. Um, and um, again, if, as that happens, if we are successful with moving um, forward here, uh, then that recovery has a greater chance of being maybe profitable for, for the government. Sure. Possible. As a taxpayer, <laughs> I'm hopeful, huh? <laughs> well, I think in, in, in two, to, to look at this, we're potentially faced with a situation of a couple of bad choices. Mm -hmm. How are those defaults handled? How uh, do we go forward? We have an immediate question of what does that do to the buyers and sellers of these kind of obligations. The second thing is that when the government gets involved in bailing these folks out in some way, shape, or form by buying the debt or guaranteeing something in some mm -hmm. way, then you have the question about what happens the next time. Mm -hmm. So now do we have the kind of situation where free market forces are actually working or are these free market forces uh, that are then heavily influenced by an expectation of government intervention in some way, shape, or form? So it's not really a free market. One of the things I thought was very interesting, last week I saw an editorial, I think it was in the New York Times, uh, complaining that we got into this crisis because of uh, the problems of unfettered capitalism. Mm -hmm. What struck me uh, as a little bit disingenuous because all of these markets are both, A, very highly regulated, uh, first mm -hmm. of all, and secondly, very highly influenced by government entities being involved in the extension of credit or the guarantee thereof. So this is anything but unfettered capitalism. In fact, it is capitalism with many influences. 
uh, some of which may most, be positive and some of which are not. We have the most regulated markets in the world, other than, uh, I guess, of China, yes. of the industrial, the industrial world. world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, re relative to, um, you know, uh, the financial markets in Great Britain and Europe, I mean, there is more regulation here in the U.S. So we do have regulation. It's not unfettered capitalism, per se. But That's we right. do have, again, as um, one quote was saying something about innovation sometimes precedes regulation. So, mm -hmm. um, again, sometimes there are innovations in the financial market that we haven't yet learned how or in what way they mm -hmm. might need to be regulated or increase transparency, improve disclosure, um, those kinds of things. That, that may be one area where uh, some changes do need to take place. Sure. Well, one thing I think I can assure everyone, we will have legislation. One thing the U.S. Congress can do is pass laws. Mm -hmm. And anytime there's a crisis, they feel the need to pass laws. Yeah. Sarbanes-Oxley, and you know, many people now, particularly in the accounting field, Beverly say that maybe Sarbanes went a little too far, particularly mm -hmm. for the mid-sized companies and the yes, cost and of compliance. Yes, and they've backed off that That's as right. a result it, of that. So I can, and this is just my gut feel, that we will see significant legislation that may go a little too far, and then after a few years we'll settle down and maybe they'll back off. But I, I would fully expect to say, well, we know there's going to be some legislation. Congress has been debating it today on what to do, how to structure things, and the political parties are going back and forth on things like limits on executive compensation mm -hmm. and, you know, some of those provisions. Uh, some of the folks uh, in the last couple of weeks have blamed uh, incentive-based executive compensation contracts for some of the problems that we've seen at some of these firms. Do either of you care to talk a little bit about that? I don't see, I personally, my view is uh, that's not a big deal. I mean, certainly people make very big salaries. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, look at Fannie Mae. Look right. at uh, Mr. Raines, who, of course, is no longer in that position. He had a nice little tidy package when he left. Uh, so, yes, they've been very high. Uh, whether, whether you can say that the pay of the top management caused all these problems, I think, is a little bit of a stretch. Now, debating whether their pay was too high, that's a whole different issue. You could debate that when times are good or times are mm -hmm. bad. You know, uh, at what point does someone's pay become too high? Yeah, I think executive compensation becomes a really attractive target because some of those numbers get to be so big that a whole lot of folks can't relate to them very well. So when you see somebody uh, that's an executive getting a 20 or 30 or 50 million dollar package, maybe for hitting an annual target that the next year it looks like wasn't really a sound long-term mm -hmm. sustainable target, but maybe they met mm -hmm. their stock price goals or sales right. goals or some other uh, uh, kind of goal in that immediate time, generating that big payout for them, and the next year something terrible has happened. That's the kind of thing that people look around and go, wait a minute, if that's what they did, how come this guy is walking away with a $30 million package and now we find out that his firm is bankrupt? Yeah, I think late, just late this afternoon, I think it was the AIG CEO who was removed Mm -hmm. was entitled, if he'd only been there three months, he left a $50 million job to take that over, and so he was entitled to this $25 million severance, but he announced he would not accept it given the circumstances. Of course, he, there was a lot of publicity about that for someone who's been on the job three months. But he did give up a pretty nice little job when he was convinced to take over AIG and try to turn it around. Sure. So. Well, I think that in this uh, complicates things a little bit when you start having uh, the federal government, the legislature, uh, whether it's the House or Senate, uh, putting together legislation to try to resolve this problem. 
So part mm -hmm. of what you sort of see, and we saw a huge bounce at the end of last week in the markets. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, as it looks like over the weekend, some of the bailout, uh, quote unquote, bailout package details start getting held up and slowed down. The financial markets had a tough day today mm -hmm. uh, because they, uh, there seemed to be an expectation that uh, there was a deal that was sort of worked out and it seemed to be falling apart now as we enter back into the re, uh, a reminder to everyone that we are in fact in a political season. It is a, mm -hmm. a re-election or mm -hmm. an election year for, for the presidency and a hotly contested uh, presidential right. election. That makes, that's very, I mean, yeah. I think that's adding one more little complicating factor. So Let's face it. When you're in an electric yeah. election, you're both sides are doing some degree of political posturing with this. They're probably going to do it in any year, but I think given this fall's election coming up, it's probably going to be taken mm -hmm. to a new level. Okay. So, so you, know, you have to be aware of that. And sometimes when you see some of our political leaders on the news, remember they may be just throwing out something there for the uh, political expediency of the moment. Well, this is what democracy right. is about, at least in part, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we talk about unfettered capitalism, right. we have to talk about unfettered uh, politics. Uh, politics as well. Okay, we have a few more questions uh, that have come in. Uh, and here's a question from Norman Freeman. It says, how will this affect our economy if foreign governments don't fund the bailout? Higher taxes? And uh, do either one of you have any uh, opinion on it? If gov foreign governments don't fund the bailout, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I guess I guess they're talking about through the purchase of you, additional U.S. government securities and then okay. the governments. So okay. foreign governments become increasingly unwilling to lend to the U.S. through buying government securities. Right. If they begin to, to feel that we're printing paper, I guess, kind of thing, um, then it could be a, a, an increase in interest rates would be a, a higher, possible higher result. Higher borrowing costs. Higher borrowing costs. Um, and, and again, I, um, the, we're talking about raising the deficit to the level of... Um, what, one trillion total with 700, you know. It's, it's, it's a it's huge, huge lump number. of, yes, So it, it is hard to, to think in this election year as we're being promised tax cuts for 95% of U.S. Um, voters, if that's really possible. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, we will see higher taxes, but uh, obviously somebody's going to have, have, um, right. have a higher tax bill somewhere. Well, I, I don't personally often find myself in agreement with Paul Krugman editorials, and I certainly don't agree with the whole uh, uh, cash for trash editorial that he had in today's New York Times. Uh, but I do think there is a point on which I would agree with him, that is, if the government is rushing to uh, uh, in, go in and acquire hundreds of billions of dollars worth of debt, uh, Putting the other deal over the weekend to make sure that happens is something that we all might want to sort of take a deep breath and sort of look at the details of it mm -hmm. rather than rushing on in. Okay, uh, next question from Derek. Uh, Sunday's MTP, in addition to an interview with Secretary Paulson, um, I'm not sure what MTP is, uh, also featured an interview with Michael Bloomberg and described a move to establish a single regulatory authority for U.S. financial markets, uh, which Mr. Bloomberg might manage. Uh, what are the pros and cons of concentrating this sort of, or centralizing this sort of U.S. regulatory structure? And I guess what he's talking about here is in part the regulation of U.S. financial markets is fragmented among several different mm -hmm. agencies. Right, the Federal Reserve has a role, the Comptroller of the Currency mm -hmm. has a role, 
Uh, who else has a role? Uh, well, the Securities and Exchange the Commission. FDIC, yeah. The Securities and Exchange Commission, and for intrastate securities, and the, uh, the state securities uh, office, like in Alabama, the Alabama mm -hmm. Securities Office. Mm -hmm. Insurance is regulated by states. Mm -hmm. Each state has an insurance commission or something like that. So depending on the particular financial product, uh, you can have different, a lot of different regulatory authorities out there. Uh, so we, like Beverly said earlier, though, we do tend to be very heavily regulated, but it is fragmented. Uh, and that worked okay when insurance was totally separate from investments and banking. But, uh, you know, the pros and cons, that's a difficult question to ask. We've never had a unified system. Uh, I don't know if, the, if they're asking, do we regulate everything, every single financial product? Um, it, it is difficult. And I can difficult. say from part of my uh, experience working in one of the state regulatory agencies in Florida, uh, the Florida Public Service Commission, uh, it is very difficult to actually regulate uh, industries very well. You have limited information. You have mm -hmm. people at any of these places that are actually trying to do very, very difficult jobs. Uh, you also have the situation typically where the people working in those agencies uh, could make a whole lot more money if they left those agencies yes. and worked for the utilities or the other industries mm -hmm. being regulated, and quite often many people do, so you have certain behavioral issues that get into actually the way regulation works. You have a whole set of, of economic theory about how regulation works, and then you have the reality of how regulation works. And in some ways, I think it is, uh, uh, although this is a, a sometimes controversial view, it is not necessarily a bad thing if you can have different regulatory agencies so that you can sort of see, here's how something works when it's regulated by the states, here's how something works when it's regulated by the federal government, and essentially have some sort of comparison and sort of watch what happens. And that, in, in large part, uh, I think that's part of what we saw happening in the, in the savings and loan issues, where you had some aggressive states trying to do some things, where Texas and California did some things where, in fact, if those had been done across the whole country, the savings and loan problem would have been worse mm -hmm. uh, than, in fact, it was, because they, they did some things that helped subsidize some, some particularly risky activities right. that when things turned south, uh, folks got stuck with. I would be a little concerned about a single regulatory agency just from the sheer size of the bureaucracy that would result um, mm -hmm. without knowing any details. I mean, it, it could become a real problem there yeah. in dealing with everything.